0: So we're going to read from God's Word uh, from Daniel chapter seven, uh, which you'll find on page six hundred and thirty one. Daniel chapter seven, verses nine to fourteen. As I looked. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed.
1: Thanks Simon. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you tonight uh, with humility. We bow before you as our great King and our Lord. Father, I ask that your word would be our guide and our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher. And we do pray that our supreme concern would be your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Friends, we're starting a new series in the book of Revelation. It's on page 800. 800- and 67. So please turn to Revelation. When I tell people preaching Revelation, I either get groans or people say, oh, that's weird. Uh, for many people, the book of Revelation is just weird. It's uh, bizarre. It's uh, meaningless. Uh, the book of Revelation is the uh, the playground of religious eccentrics who are obsessed with the beasts and the horse of the apocalypse and Uh, The number 666, Uh, the book of Revelation has been described as the monopoly of the end-time guessing games. People are obsessed with, uh, when is Christ going to return? Someone said, Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him mad. So what's your attitude to the book of Revelation? Uh, Many Christians, many churches just ignore it, it's just too hard, so their Bibles effectively end with the letter of Jude. Other Christians, uh, they get bogged down with Revelation, and you, know, you say to them, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Oh, Revelation, why is that? I don't know, I just love all that bizarre symbolism. What does it mean? I've no idea, but I just love it. I want to take a few moments before we look at Revelation 1 just to address a few questions. First question is this, why is this book so difficult for us? Why is Revelation so hard to read? I think the main answer is that we're not used to this kind of literature. We're used to prose, we're used to poetry. Uh, Some of us are used to poetry. Prose, poetry, letters, but not apocalyptic. Uh, The word revelation is literally apocalypse. It means an unveiling. It means something that's hidden that's been made known to you. And apocalyptic writing was very popular at the time of Jesus between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D., Apocalyptic literature is just symbolism. There's lots of symbols in Revelation. And it's supposed to make you think deeply, not get bogged down in the details. So I think many people approach apocalyptic literature a bit like you might uh, look at a photograph. I show you a photograph and you say, oh yeah, I recognize that person. And they're wearing these clothes and those cool shoes and they're standing in this place and it's a party, it's a wedding, whatever it is. It's like a photograph. But that's not Revelation. Uh, reading the book of Revelation is more like looking at a, an Impressionist painting. I'm not a massive art fan, but you know, go down to Canberra, see the, the Monet exhibition. Now what happens if you stand too close to a an Impressionist painting? What do you see if you get right up close to an Impressionist painting? You just see splodges and blots and mess, and you haven't got a clue what that picture is. If you step back and, and look at those Uh, that Monet lilies or whatever he painted or the Van Gogh and you don't see the splodges you see a beautiful picture the same with Revelation please don't get bogged down in the splodges and the the blots look back step back see from the big picture the second reason we find it so difficult is that we get the focus wrong hand up people here who think that Revelation is about the end times one honest person (laughs) See, most people say the book of Revelation is all about the end times. It's all about Armageddon. It's all about the end of the world. Uh, You know, a very small proportion of Revelation is about the end times. The focus of the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ, who won his victory at Calvary 2,000 years ago, and about what it means to live for Jesus as his church, as his people in the here and now. That's the focus of Revelation. How are we, as the church, going to follow this bloodstained Savior in the here and now as we live in this pagan world? Yeah, a bit is about the end times, a bit is about the new heaven and new Jerusalem, but most of it is about living as the church, as a persecuted church in this world, following our Savior. But the main reason we don't get Revelation is that, by and large, we're not persecuted. Now, you might think you're persecuted when a friend or a family member laughs at you because you go to church. That's not persecution. Persecution is when you're tortured for your faith, when you're martyred for your faith. And John is writing to a church that daily face death because they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So look down with me at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, why is John on Patmos? I've been to Patmos, it's a beautiful Greek island. I went on holiday. John wasn't on holiday, he's in prison. He's in chains. He's been taken off the mainland, put on an island to stop him preaching the gospel. He is suffering for his faith and he's writing to Christians who are suffering. They're opposed by the Jews who hated them. They're opposed by Caesar who's forcing these Christians to worship him as their their king and their emperor. And they're opposed from within with false teaching from Balaam and from the Nicolaitans and Tolerance. And these Christians, this church, every day leave their front door facing death because they're following Jesus. And this book of Revelation is supposed to be an assurance and an encouragement to persecuted Christians. And that's why we don't get it. Because we're not persecuted. If we were persecuted, Revelation would suddenly make sense to us. So what is the book of Revelation? It's, it's a letter. Like every other New Testament letter, you've got a sender. Who's, who's writing this letter? Verse 4. It's John. A John was the beloved disciple of Jesus, he's a son of Zebedee, he's a brother of James, he's writing from the penal colony of Patmos in about 80 AD, he's suffering for his faith, and he's writing to seven churches. Verse four. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, that is, modern day Turkey. He's writing to real people, real churches, with real struggles, facing death every day. Uh, Who are these churches? Look down to verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you got a map out and you plotted those churches, you'd have a circle. It's a circular route to all these churches, but they're not the only churches there. There are other churches in between. And the point is, this is a letter to all the churches in that region at that time and for us today. Who's it written by? Uh, grace and peace to you, verse 4. From him who is, who was, who is to come. That's the eternal God and Father. He was, he is, he is to come. It's from the Holy Spirit, an enigmatic way of saying the seven spirits before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's from Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. You see, this is just a letter to Christians to encourage them to live for Jesus in this world today. And that's why it's relevant to you and to me. Because I need help, and you need help to keep living for Jesus in the here and now. It's also a prophecy. That word is in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. When I say the word prophecy, what do you think? I think most people think prophecy is predicting the future. That's not how the Bible uses the word prophecy. Prophecy is when you speak the Word of God into people's lives in the here and now. You have a word from the Lord for somebody in the here and now. It might be about the future. Occasionally it is about the future, but in general, it's a word for the here and now. So this is a letter of prophecy. So why are you bothering to study? Why am I bothering to spend 10 weeks preaching revelation? Well, it's in the Bible. So I'm going to preach it because I believe all all the Bible is the word of God. I do believe we can understand it. And more importantly, it will equip us to live for Jesus. But look at the word in verse 3. What's the first word in verse 3? Tell me. Blessed. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. That's why I'm preaching, because I want this church to be blessed. And the way we're blessed is by reading Revelation, hearing Revelation, and obeying Revelation. And I pray that as we read, listen, understand, and put into practice, there'll be enormous blessings on you as an individual, and on us as a church. So I'm going to read Revelation 1. Let's go. The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Oh Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father, that to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's my big question for tonight. How did the church survive? You know, ask that question, how did God's church survive? Just come back 2,000 years, you've got a few men and a few women, uh, and they're meeting in a place called Jerusalem. They've got a leader who is dead. Uh, They've got a world that mocks them and ridicules them. And from that group of people, today around the world, there are millions and millions of churches. How on earth did that happen? How did the early church survive the persecution? How did the first Christians survive their martyrdom? How did the early church survive under Nero as he martyred hundreds and thousands of Christians? How did the church in Thessalonica survive where Paul had only been there for three weeks and then he left them overnight? How did they survive? How did the church in Colossae survive when there's so much heresy going on? How did the early church grow over those years? It was Voltaire who said, in a hundred years time, there will be no church and no Christians and no Bibles in circulation. And yet just 50 years later, in that very room where he made that speech, Bibles were being printed. How ironic was that? How did the church survive the enlightenment? How does the church survive the postmodern age? How did the church survive in China when all the missions were driven out and yet today there are 60 million Christians there? How did the church survive in Cambodia where, when the killing fields happened and, and millions of Christians were martyred for their faith? How on earth did the church survive then? Why is there still a church in Kiribati? Why are you here tonight? Is it just some social gathering? Are we just here to. Have fun together? Is it just some psychological crutch for you? Why are we here as church? How did God's church survive? Surely you've got to ask that question. And if you think the answer to that is that uh, there's been these amazingly intelligent men and women who have just had these great visions and great strategies and we've just, sort of, we've just kept the church going by a bit of money here, a bit of money there, and a new vision, a new strategy... If you think the church has survived because of luck, you're sorely mistaken. The reason we're here tonight, and the reason around the world today millions of Christians are gathering as church, is because of one man, and his name is Jesus. Jesus established his church, Jesus protects his church. Jesus holds his church in his right hand, right here, right now. And Jesus will keep on holding on to his church until the day that he returns. It's all because of Jesus and not because of you. Let me show you. Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, that is Jesus. What are these seven golden lampstands? If you know your Bibles, the lampstands were outside the temple, at the entrance to the inner sanctuary. It's the presence of God. But we don't need to know our Bibles that well. John tells us, down in verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches. They could be human leaders. They could be angelic beings. We don't know. It's not relevant. But the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now go back to verse 12 and see if it impacts you. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. And among the churches was someone like a son of man. Verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars, the seven angels of the seven churches. And you've got this beautiful picture of of the risen Lord Jesus walking among his churches, the the risen Lord Jesus holding his churches in his right hand. It's a picture of Jesus protecting, uh, securing with his churches, and that's why the churches survived. Because Jesus is holding on to them. When the odds were stacked against the church, Jesus was there. When the persecution was intense, Jesus was there. When it felt like everyone had left the church, Jesus was there. Because it's all about Jesus. And I hope tonight, if you look at Revelation 1, your understanding of Jesus will be blown away. That you will love Jesus more. That you'll be more secure in Jesus. And you will be confident that this church and God's church will never be destroyed because of Jesus. Let's go. The powerful Jesus who establishes His church. Look how He's described. Verse five: Jesus Christ is the the faithful witness. Look at those two words: faithful witness. He's not a liar. Jesus always tells the truth. Jesus never never compromises the truth. He is faithful even to the point of death. That's what the word witness means, martyr. He's a faithful martyr. He's the one who suffered death for the truth. Now, now put yourself as a first century Christian. You're under attack. You're facing death every day. Your church is being torched and burned to the ground. The fact that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, that's got to encourage you. Uh, I'm not dying for lies. I'm dying for the truth. Jesus is my model, I can can stand this persecution because he's there standing for the truth. He is the faithful witness. More than that, he's the firstborn from the dead, verse 5. That's how he's described in Colossians 1, verse 18 as well. He's defeated death. Death has no power over him. He's conquered sin and death. Now again, persecuted Christian facing death every day. If I was about to face death every day for my Lord Jesus, to know that there is no fear in death because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, I could walk out to the street and say, where, O death, is your stink? Nothing to fear because Jesus is my firstborn from the dead. And more than that, verse 5, he is the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is literally the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now, do you remember when, when the devil tempted Jesus? In the wilderness? What did the devil offer Jesus? He said, you know, if you follow me, if you deny your God, I will give you authority and rule over all these cities. And you can always imagine the risen Lord Jesus and he's mocking the devil and going, I am the king of kings, I'm I'm the lord of laws, and I already rule over all these nations. And again, if you're a first century Christian, You're being forced to worship Caesar. You're being forced to worship your emperor. You can say, no. I worship the king of kings and I worship the lord of lords. He is the ruler over you, whether you like it or not. And he is the one who establishes his church. How does he do that? Verse 5. To him who, look at it with me, he loves us. He doesn't put it in the past tense, does he? He doesn't say to him who loved us. It's not that Jesus loved us at one time in history at a cross. He always loves us. He goes on loving us. He lavishes us with his love. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Please don't skip over those precious truths. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. When you're feeling unloved, when you're feeling unlovable, there's somebody, the risen Lord Jesus, who loves you enough to die for you, to hold on to you, to care for you, to hold you, and to protect you. He's done more than that. He has freed us from our sins. I can imagine John writing those words. Just come with me. You're lying in chains. Your wrists are changed, your feet are changed, and you write the words Jesus has freed me. Now that means something. I'm a free man. You can chain me, but I'm free because jesus freed me from my sins my rebellion and he's done that by the precious blood of jesus no one can condemn me no one can hold things against me cuz there's no condemnation in christ i'm washed i'm clean i'm forgiven i'm free and because of that i'm a kingdom and priests i'm a kingdom in that i have royal standing with god i'm a prince i'm a princess i'm a priest I have direct access to God. In Jesus, I'm a a child of God. I'm a a prince, a princess who has direct access to God and I'm made to do what? I'm made to serve him, verse 6. I don't have to serve Jesus. I get to serve Jesus because I'm his church. And I want to serve Jesus. Why? Because verse 7 tells me that he's returning. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. It's quoted from Zechariah chapter 12. Unlike his first coming, when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, even those who pierced him. I'd hate to be the soldiers who pierced Jesus. Can you imagine if you've been those men who nailed the nine inch nails through his wrists and his feet? They crucified the Lord. And yet they'll see him face to face. But it's not just them. It's every man, woman, and child down the ages who pierce Jesus every day by ignoring him and mocking him and ridiculing him and saying he doesn't exist. But one day they'll see him face to face. And this tells me that all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. We're not people of the earth, we're people of the kingdom, we're priests. We won't be mourning. We'll be rejoicing, but the people who ignored him, the people of the earth who denied him, they'll be mourning because they'll recognize him as their Lord and Savior, but it's too late. Have you got the picture of Jesus? King, Lord, faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, who loves us, who's freed us, who's made us to be a kingdom and peace. He's returning. Now, if you belong to the early church, that would assure me, that would comfort me That would encourage me just to keep trusting. But, you know, Christians aren't martyred today, are they? Christians don't die for their faith today, do they? Do you know how many Christians were martyred in 2008? According to the Gordon-Conwell Seminary, listen carefully, 171,000. 171,000 men and women, boys and girls, were martyred for their faith two years ago. And I imagine if you face death like that, this picture of Jesus who loves us, who's freed us, who's a firstborn from the dead, who guarantees us our resurrection bodies, that's going to comfort you and assure you. What about you? If our government suddenly decided that you were not able to worship not allowed to worship and they torched our buildings and they dragged the person next to you away and they imprisoned them as those men in Vietnam are right here, right now, tonight, imprisoned for their faith. What's the comfort and the assurance and the encouragement that you need? That the risen Lord Jesus loves you and has freed you and is coming again in glory. See, we don't get it, and we don't get it because for most of us, we still keep Jesus as a hobby or a compartment of our life, but if you're called to die for him, that's when your faith is put on the line. Is he my life? Is he my all? Is he everything to me? And the answer is yes, because he's king of kings and lord of lords. And that's why verse 6 can say, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And the people said, Amen. If I, if I preach this in a Pentecostal church, I get an Amen there. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And the people said, Amen. He is the one who has all power and all glory and all authority. Because he's the one who's brought you. Let me blow your mind some more the glorious risen Lord Jesus who rules his church. Verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit. I love the phrase Lord's day. At the time of writing there was the emperor's day when everybody would stop for a day and worship the emperor. But John's not going to do that because he has the Lord's day, the Sunday, the resurrection day, the day of his saviour. He's on the Lord's day and John's in the spirit. John is not getting high on dope. John has a real spiritual encounter with the risen Lord Jesus just like Peter did he was in the spirit in Acts 10 Paul's in the spirit in Acts 22 now John is in the spirit the veil is drawn aside and John sees Jesus now listen very carefully he sees Jesus not as he was and not just as he will be he sees Jesus as he is now now And this is my challenge for you tonight. Is this how you see Jesus now? Is this your understanding of Jesus? Let the images pile up. What do you see? Verse 13, I saw someone like a son of man. He's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. Who wears a robe? In the Bible, only two people wear the robe the high priest and the king. And Jesus is our high priest and he's our king, so he's wearing this robe. And Jesus is now wearing this golden sash around his chest, which is a, a symbol, a sign of authority, the highest political office, the highest spiritual office. And what's Jesus' hair like? Verse 14, his head and hair were, were white like wool, as white as snow. Could be purity. Purity more likely it's a mark of wisdom a mark of honour, of dignity of respect, his hair his head was clothed with the wisdom and the dignity of all eternity and those eyes I find those eyes quite scary in verse 14 Jesus' eyes were like blazing fire ever met those people when they look at you and they look at you face to face and they eye to eye you and it's almost like they, they can see inside you. And they know what you're thinking and they know what you're feeling and they see in you. That's the picture of these eyes of Jesus. Penetrating. Looking at you. Looking in you. Looking through you. Knowing you intimately. Melting your pride. Melting your hypocrisy. He knows you. And his feet, verse 15... They're the the point of stability. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong. Iron is powerful. But iron rusts. And you need to mix it with copper to stop it from, from rusting. If you've got bronze, it's strong. It's indestructible. What about his voice? What does Jesus sound like? His voice, verse 16, was like, the sound of rushing waters. It's like the the wave crashing on the shore. It's like standing under, under a waterfall. If you've ever done that, standing under a waterfall, and the waters come over you, and it's just awe-inspiring and magnificent and just overwhelming. And the words that come out of his mouth in verse 16 are sharp as a double-edged sword. They are razor sharp, they are penetrating, they cut us to the core. Uh, They rebuke us. They encourage us. They build us up. They tear us down. His words have authority. And then we can see him face to face. His face was like, like the sun. Shining in all its brilliance. Now what a picture. Your glorious, risen, ascended, reigning, ruling, powerful, King. That's what he's like now. He's not your, your man walking on earth anymore. He's not your babe in arms anymore. He's left his mother's arms. He's not your man on the cross anymore. He, he's defeated death. He's risen. That's what he's like now. In glory. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but he is in glory. Have you got it? To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So how do you respond to this Jesus? What does he want from you? I imagine if someone famous came in here tonight you might stand. If someone important came in you might shake your hand. If a if a buddy came in you might give him a man hug. Yeah, look, Your response to people is shown in your attitude towards them. How do you respond to this glorious risen Lord Jesus? I've got two words for you. The first one is just worship him. Worship him. Verse 17 When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. To fall at your feet is literally to bow down, it's the worship word. It's the adoration word. Uh, You adore him. You're amazed at him. But more than that, you feel this big compared to him. You're just, you're humbled by him. You're a speck compared to his majesty and his glory. You just recognize your smallness compared to his greatness. Because this true picture of your risen, reigning, glorious Lord Jesus, it should rebuke you of your casualness towards Jesus. It should rebuke you to your, your selfish pride that thinks you're somebody, you're nobody compared to him. And the right response to him is just to, to fall on your face as though you're dead. Because when you are face to face with someone as glorious as that, you deserve death. That's what we deserve. But he doesn't give it to us. It's like your attitude towards Jesus, you're, you're just so overwhelmed and awe of him that you worship him. We all worship something. Worship it just means that you, you, you give your energy, time to something that you think is worth worshipping. Do you worship Jesus and Jesus alone as your God? What has your heart family, your friends, your career, your sport, or does this risen Lord Jesus have all your worth worship? The second word is this. It's a beautiful word. The word is assurance. Because John is on his face. Just imagine he's lying face down before Jesus as though dead. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 17. It's a beautiful picture of comfort. He placed his right hand on me, and he said these words: "Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid." Just the most common command in the whole Bible. It comes 365 times. 365 times, "Do not be afraid." One for every day of the year. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because we should be afraid coming face to face with this glorious King. But we shouldn't be afraid because he's also our Saviour who loves us and comforts us. What are you afraid of? What are you fearful of? Failure? What others think of you? Afraid of the future? Afraid of death? If you know this risen Lord Jesus, you have nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because he says in verse 17, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end. I am the living one. I'm alive. I've defeated death. I was dead, but now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And that's your assurance. That's your hope. That's your comfort. That's your joy. That's why you're not afraid because he is the one who's defeated death. He's the one who holds you and he's the one who's alive. It's the Puritans who said, they can take my life, but they can't take my soul. They can take everything, but I've still got Jesus. Don't be afraid. Whatever life throws at you, don't be afraid. They can kill you. Don't be afraid. I think the woman who modeled this to me most was my godmother. She died when I was about 20. It's a long death. Painful death. But, you know, as I watched her die, there was no fear. No fear at all. (laughs) Yes, she was in pain, but there was just this peace and this assurance. She knew where she was going. That's because she knew her risen Savior, glorious, ascended. Do you have that assurance? Do you have that comfort? Do you have that hope? You will do if you've got the right view of Jesus. See, Jesus is the most powerful and glorious man in history. And I hope tonight that your vision of Jesus has been blown away. You can leave here tonight with a small view of Jesus. Just a man, just a baby, just the man on the cross. If that's you, then you'll go through life always afraid, never certain, and you'll have a really shallow relationship with God. But if you see Jesus in his glory, King of kings, Lord of lords, who loves us, who's freed us, who's returning, his eyes, his mouth, uh, his hair, full of wisdom, and his face and all his glory, then you'll leave here with that sort of, that tension. Part of me wants to fall down before him and just just worship him but the other part of me just standing here with my head held high because I've got nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to fear. And that's why I want to say to him, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, forgive us for the times when we have such a small view of you. Forgive us for the times when we question your faithfulness, we doubt your love, we question your return, we deny your power. Lord Jesus, help us to see you as you are now, the risen, ascended, glorious, powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to worship you and you alone. And thank you for the comfort, the hope, and the joy that you bring. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.